0: So those are the easy questions Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Now for the hard stuff Um, Exploring the relationship between religion and science Hmm. um, How do you think that Judaism tackles Have you heard of the God of the Gaps argument? Sure Uh, For example that religion is only used as a form of answering unanswered questions Hmm. Uh, what do you think? What would be your response to someone who is a complete atheist and says, "Look, throughout the years, religion's just been there to answer these questions which we don't know beforehand, whenever why the sun rises or where the uh, universe comes from. Where the universe comes from. What would be your response?
1: I mean, I, listen. at some level, atheism is another type of religion. Um, I think, and and so sometimes it's challenging to have the conversation, but let's imagine with an open atheist with us. Um, I tend to think the questions that the Torah, called the Old Testament, the Jews don't think it's still still pretty relevant so it's not that old. Um, The Torah isn't there to tell you what happened. It's there to tell you more of the meaning behind, the why it's happening. So, The world of science is a world of what. The details of what makes the world tick, how it goes along its path, what laws work. The world of religion doesn't come to fill up those what spots that haven't been answered and therefore getting smaller and smaller. It's there to fill a different kind of space. That's the world of why. Why are we here? Why be good? Is there meaning in this world? Those kind of questions, science doesn't touch, at all, and neither, and it shouldn't. It can never answer those kind of questions. Those are the kind of questions, I think, that only the religious mind, the soul, engaged in a soulful connection with God, in prayer, and study, and community, um, can really get to. Those basic, basic points. That first question, when God turns to Adam Harisham, the first man. After he's eaten from that forbidden fruit and says, ayeka which sort of is a mix between "Where are you?" but also "Who are you?" Those are the religious questions.
0: "Who are you?" can world? we ever answer questions like, "Who are we?" Because
1: I'm no. I'm sure the
0: atheist would say they're quite open ended yeah. uh, but
1: I think sometimes the fact that we are simply asking the questions at that stage allows us to sort of like peer inside ourselves, self-awareness.: Exactly. Sort of exactly. It's that search, it's that endless search that I think religion sort of, you know, um, there's a, uh, a famous case where someone comes to Lubavitcher Rebbe, a, very f- a rabbi of the last century who is considered to be um, Pogs Lantz, one of, the, one of the amazing rabbis of the last generation, and someone turned to him, one of a, a very cheeky student, said, what are you good for? Like, why are all the people around you, you know, you, you Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rebbe he says, I don't know what I'm here for. I'll tell you what my rabbi was here for. And he said, you know, my rabbi always would say he was a geologist of the soul. So what does that mean? He says, you know, we, uh, a rabbi, a spiritual guide, a teacher um, can't give you the tools to dig inside yourself, right? And he can't force you to dig inside yourself, but he can sort of guide you a bit about the best spots to dig inside yourself. Which spot inside of each of us will, if you dig there, with all your might and with all your passion will lead to real diamonds, real gold, real silver? In which spots it's going to go into like empty caverns? And that's the rabbi's job, said the Lubavitcher Rebbe, to be a geologist of the soul, to say here's what might work if you want to dig for gold
0: within yourself. It must be really rewarding seeing someone. See that self awareness and seeing what they can become because they know more about themselves.
1: Yeah, but it's a constant journey, isn't it? I mean, constant
0: journey and going back to uh, the issue with mental health. I think that having self awareness also uh, you get self worth from that. Exactly. Um, so I think that's a way that religion can really help uh, with mental illness. Going back to the contemporary issues question. Um, so, have you had? Have you encountered any difficulties? Um, practicing your religion?
1: Um, So I'm originally from America. Yeah, Um, Been living uh, for about five, six years in Israel to do my rabbinical training. And now for the last 10 years in the UK. Um, And throughout that whole time, sure, I've suffered a few verbal attacks. Um, People yelling at me, you know, in the streets of London, um, some other. But beyond that, I haven't personally experienced any direct, I would say, real threats to Judaism. I realize they're out there, um, and you know, maybe we'll get on this in a bit about the issue of anti-Semitism, specifically in the Labour Party. Um, but on the personal level, um, doing the interfaith work that we do here, we go pretty much everywhere, everywhere from you know Bradford in the north to you know Birmingham. And and all these places where people say, oh, those are no-go zones. Um, But I've walked through all those places with a keep on my head into mosques and gurdwaras and Hindu temples, and I've never experienced anything but the most warm
0: welcome you can imagine. Do you think people are more accepting than, say, the media, um, for instance, shows or portrays um, that people are more accepting of religions? Because you get this idea that... um, religious beliefs are on the decline um especially in the uk uh and you get the far-right extremists that are plastered all over the news um trying to give the impression that religion's under attack do you ever feel like that as a religious leader yourself
1: well i think identity politics and religion are getting quite um convoluted with each other and in some ways it's concretizing people's beliefs there's less flexibility uh, across the board um And we see it in my own religion as well. People will say, you know, uh, I have a lot of members of my own family uh, who I fight with vehemently who voted for Trump because they like his views on Israel. Um, So I think people are sort of finding their little bunkers, whether or not those religious bunkers or ideological bunkers, and staying put within them. One of our job is to sort of get them out of their bunkers a bit, put some ladders down there and build some bridges. Uh, It does feel like things are changing does feel like it's much harder these days to have really good honest constructive debates on social media platforms for example the Gaza war was a perfect case where people who I would watch across you know Jews and Muslims who have been friends for years the Gaza war hit and they were saying the most atrocious things to each other Uh, does that mean there's we should lose hope no it just means that our work is harder Uh, more challenging, and uh, perhaps we have to find those places in real time, because social media is so easy when you can't see the face of the other person to say things about them. Um, So one of the things we actually do is sort of like, okay, it's really important to, to have, based on the notion called contact theory, which is, it's easy if you can't see the other to criticize and complain about them. Much harder to put them in the room together not always simple but if you engage on a simple project like the halal kosher experience with back in the bristol uni exactly or a number of projects we do where you have a big iftar breaking the fast for ramadan in a synagogue people are like wait a minute you know this is unusual i've never been to a synagogue let alone broken my ramadan fast in one Um, Or a mosque that says, I'm going to open my doors and build a sukkah, a Jewish tabernacle for a particular Jewish holiday called Sukkot, right here in the foyer of the mosque. And so the synagogue will say, that's really interesting. I didn't know there was a local mosque, let alone they're going to support and celebrate uh, an experience which is so dear to my heart as this Jewish tabernacle. So I, I tend to think by doing the unusual You can allow people to sort of move away, shift away from those bunker places towards a little bit of understanding. And that's our job, to just move
0: the dial just a little bit, to move the needle just a touch towards understanding. Have you encountered more similarities or differences between other religions? Obviously you work in interfaith work.
1: Uh, I think for the most part people want the same thing. They want to live good solid lives with their families and their loved ones. Um, when it comes to religion, I love to celebrate the differences as much as, you know, bring together the harmony of the similitudes, because the differences I think is where we grow. You know, learning about another person's faith and all of its uniqueness helps me see that they and I, despite all our differences, can have sort of a a shared common language. uh, You know, the common denominator is often and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit, if they're doing a project together, say, a gardening project, with all the differences in place, we can still garden because we care about our neighborhood together. So the differences, sometimes, as vast as they are, are a little bit of allowing us to, you know, one of my teachers would always say, I'd come to him and say, we just had a big argument in a class between the Quran and the Torah and the New Testament, and he says, ah, that's great, because sometimes it's good just to refine the dialogue around what we disagree with, as well as find things we agree
0: with. Great, great. So talking about social media, um, this wasn't a question on the briefing, so I don't want to catch no i no, uh, <laughs> Talking about it. social media, how often do you use modern forms of communication to spread the message of Judaism? Um,
1: well, for the most part, um, we, Judaism isn't a proselytizing religion. Um, it's, in fact, as a religion, it's a good question whether or not Judaism is a religion. For example, people can say, I don't believe in God, I don't do anything Jewish, but they consider themselves to be good Jews, right? which
0: is a bit of a... Uh, More of a way of life. It's, but it, what
1: does that mean? They're not what doing, they're not doing yeah. anything. They're walking around, there's nothing that distinguishes them as, as doing Jewish stuff, yet they still consider themselves to be Jewish. Um, I think one of my favorite definitions is by a rabbi called Dean Steinsaufs. And he says, the best definition for Judaism is a little bit like a family, um, where you are either born into it or sort of, you know, can, in Judaism you can be born into Judaism or you can convert and, be, and become Jewish, that method. Um, but because it's not a proselytizing religion per se, I find that most of my social media engagement isn't about pushing a Jewish agenda of any sort. It's more celebrating um, people of faith doing good work together and that's usually what you know I'll do on Twitter and Facebook
0: fantastic um so going to what the Torah and what the Jewish religion really believes in controversial issues such as homosexuality and abortion um what would you say as a faith leader to someone who was for instance a practicing Jew who might be a homosexual or may want to have an abortion
1: Mm. Um, So two really tough questions. uh, I'm glad they came up. Um, Let's deal with them, unpack them each uh, bit by bit. Let's deal with the one, uh, both of them are both complicated. Abortion, first. Um, Every life in Judaism is sacred. Every soul is sacred. Even in utero, it's sacred. Um, But the life of the mother takes precedence over the life of the fetus now this can be interpreted on the minimal level as health issues so if the health of the mother is going to be endangered because of the fetus then it's okay to abort Um, many rabbis especially nowadays will say it doesn't just mean physical health it also means emotional health so if a mother says emotionally i'll be in danger if i have this child then most rabbis would give permission for abortions up until very late stages. Um, And that seems to be the general approach these days, which is the mother's rights to a healthy life, physical or mental, override the rights of the unborn child. Good so far? Good so far. Um, There's much more to it. That's the basics. Yeah. Now let's get to the next issue, which I'm still struggling with. The issue of homosexuality. Now, it's really clear we have a verse right out of Vayikra Leviticus chapter 17 and you can't get around that verse very easily. Yeah. It says that male homosexuality is to'eva, is a, is, a, is a total disgrace to the concept of what it is to be Jewish. Um, um, and, and there's many ways of interpreting that word to'eva. One way of interpreting it is that when the Torah was talking in Leviticus about the concept of male homosexuality, by the way, female homosexuality isn't mentioned that much. It's considered not to be that much of an issue. So people will say, based on that concept, that what's really going on here is the Torah was written in a time where sexuality wasn't about love, especially between two men. It was about a kind of negative relationship usually between an older man having power over a younger man and using sex to show some level of control. Sorry Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so that law wasn't about two people in a loving relationship. That law was to protect people from being in unhealthy relationships that were not about love and not about, you know, real engagement and partnering was about disempowered younger people <clears throat>
0: with older, older men. How easy do you think it is for people to take uh, religious scriptures such as the Torah too literally?
1: Well, for the Torah's great benefit or the rabbinical benefit um, they're always having a um, there's always commentary is key in Judaism, right? You can never read the text on its own there's always, you know, it says, it says, in the beginning, first line of Genesis, Bereshit bara el in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And like, you open up a Torah, as I will read it in my rabbinical, you know, class, and there are six, seven commentaries in the book, and they're all arguing with each other. Right? There's a constant sense of you can't read the letter as it is. The letter is exploding again and again, and the commentary and argument it's a comment, it's an idea called makloket. Uh, it's worth going into really briefly. I don't have to get back into uh, <laughs> the difficult issue of homosexuality. <laughs> there's, a, there's two words in Hebrew for argument. One is a word called vikuach. Vikuach is your basic argument. It comes to the word for proof. Proof means one person has more proof than the other. One person wins the argument, one person loses the argument. That's called a vikuach. That's a normal kind of argumentative, you know, winner, loser, take all. There's another word in Hebrew specifically for argument the rabbis use constantly called machloket. And um, I'll do a quick little Hebrew lesson in the middle of our podcast here. <laughs> inside makloket, is um, Hebrew is based on root words, three letter root words. Um, a word called helik is inside that bigger word makloket. That root word, helik, means a portion, a piece. So, what does this mean to say? There's portions, there's pieces inside of your argument. Um, so one of my rabbis would say, when you are arguing on the maklokit level, one should see oneself as having only one piece, one portion of a bigger truth. And that unless another person enters into dialogue, argument, makloket with you, they bring their piece, their portion, until you see their side, and really pull them together, integrate those two, one can't have a fuller picture. One can't get to the whole. That kind of argument is what the rabbis are constantly looking for. And they take the text and say, the text has to live within the energy, the engine of Mach There's no one right way to interpret the text. There's no one right way to interpret revelation that happened at Sinai. You know, they say everyone heard I've, on the mountaintop at sinai from god each one heard their own torah uniquely suited for them through their own ears through their own you know eyes and by only by joining everyone's piece and portion together do you get to a whole so if i say ah look at me i can read this text it says this i'm missing everyone else's interpretation which is so vital to the deeper understanding of what god meant to get to what god means you need every other listening to them and really arguing with them to find that peace that's can, bigger than that
0: can you ever get to the end where you actually know or is this, this is quite a hard question but you actually know what God means I, in said, this I don't group. think you can you can never get to there. no
1: because everyone has their own peace and each generation has more pieces and each person has their own story um and tell who can hear everyone's voice
0: well I think you've answered the next question that I was going to ask you but how does Judaism adapt um to modern demands, a lot of people call religion and faith outdated or these scriptures that they need to yeah. adapt because they were written thousands of years ago um, what would you say to them, I know you've sort of answered it in the last question but... So
1: it's a good point to raise here which is I'm an, uh, was trained in an orthodox tradition um, there's other elements inside Judaism there's reform, there's conservative so you know that, that saying we have two Jews in the room you have three opinions right? <laughs> so um, you'll constantly get a variety of views about that very question. Reform conservative movement will say, you know, what was done in the past is great, but we are, we're taking that and moving on, right? And adding modernity to the mix because, you know, issues of homosexuality, the Torah didn't wasn't able to deal with those questions the way that we can't. We have new insights. A more orthodox tradition will say, no, no, no. If you go too far from your roots, then how can the tree really grow? I like to think that um, what at least for myself um, my community one has to start with the foundation that's been built by our ancestors by our tradition one can build new levels new floors on top of that foundation but woe to one who truly steps away from the foundation because there's a long drop down to the, down to the ground um, so that's the struggle you know, it says that Jacob was wrestling with an angel. I think that's the wrestling match. How much, when it comes to issues like the ones about, you know, really loving homosexual marriages, am I gonna say, this represents something brand new, that I therefore have to create new rooms and new floors in my Jewish experience for? How much do I say, no, I'm gonna go back to my foundations? That's a wrestling match. In fact, the word Israel, which is what Jacob was named after that wrestling match, is what it is, I think, to be Jewish. To be Israel means to be constantly wrestling with those kinds of questions. Israel means to wrestle with God, to wrestle with man, human beings. At our best, that's who we are. We're wrestlers with this tradition.
0: So how do you come up with the answers of whether you should accept homosexuality or abortion? If you keep wrestling, you keep debating, and you can't get to that answer.
1: Right, and there's like there's, there's a great... um. Okay, so I'll tell you... Um, um, there's a concept in Judaism called shivim panim la Torah in Hebrew there's 70 faces 70 ways of interpreting every verse every line every word of the Torah 70 it's a lot there's varied ways of interpretation so I once went to my rabbi and all the class in the rabbinical seminary yeshiva was stuck with this particular section and I went to him and said I think I got the answer I was a first year student I had a lot of chutzpah a lot of uh uh, I was a, I was a little bit full of too much <laughs> pride in myself. Um, so I went to him and I said, I think I got the answer. And I laid it all out. It's here, it's this. He looked at me and he said, he says, um, that's incorrect. That's not right. And I was like, well, you know, teacher, rabbi, you told me shivim panim, there's 70 faces to the Torah. And he nodded and said, I know I told you that, Natan, but what you just told me, that wasn't one of the yeah. 70. <laughs> so yes. <laughs> There's a lot of interpretations. There's also a vessel that holds those interpretations. There's a limit to the interpretive method. I find that the only way of sort of working oneself as a religious soul through the labyrinth of all the different ways and panim faces and interpretations is to um, hold fast to a tradition. Hold fast to a rabbi who learned from his rabbi who's taught by that rabbi and so on and so forth as teacher to student student to pupil again and again I think if one's holding fast to some chain even if you're adding your own link to it you can look back upon that chain and see where Kim comes from I think that's key
0: um my last question if there was something you could change in classical Judaism Ooh. what would it be
1: one thing huh? one thing that's a great question uh, um It'd be easy to say, oh, it's, you know, because Judaism is consistently in flux, that um, it'll change. You know, um, there's, a, there's a great comment by uh, the former chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs. Uh, we with rabbis, when I asked him um, this big question, like, who is a Jew? Uh, you know, how do you, who is a Jew can be Jew? And he says, you know, you can, be de- you can define yourself as Jewish if your grandchildren remain Jewish. <laughs> so if you're teaching them a world that makes sense into the future, yeah. so allowing them to be really flexible, open to, we don't know what Judaism will look like you know, the next generation, it'll probably be unrecognizable. My grandchildren's Judaism might look really different than my own, um, and I want to embrace that. Uh, if I would change one thing, one thing particular, what
0: would I change? I feel like you love the flexibility about I, it. Yeah. So I feel like you've answered All question, of that. Um, yeah.
1: If I had to choose one, though, yeah. it'd be um, women rabbis. Okay. Women rabbis. I think it's time, and it's actually starting, so I'm not the first person by a long shot, to, and even in the Orthodox world, to come up with this concept, which is in, there is a need to embrace the voice of women, I think, right now. I have daughters, um, and their place behind the machitza, the separation, where men are running the um, normative service on a daily basis, and the prayers and the main components of ritual life, and the women are behind a curtain or some sort of called a a separation. I like separation. I think it's good to have places where men have a place where they can be in touch with other men. I think it leads to a certain comfort and openness uh, and trust. I like the place where women feel they can have a place of trust. So I don't want to separate, to let go of separation entirely. I want to keep them, but I feel as though that there's a need for women's strong religious Jewish leadership and pushing our daughters um, to become the next leaders is, I think, the key place where Judaism can go to and
0: where it's really struggling at the moment to embrace. Um, Do you think that's religion as a whole? Or would you specify Judaism as um, one of the key religions that needs to focus on that? I think
1: it goes back to that earlier point, which is if you let go of your foundations, what yeah. have you become?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but if you steadfastly hold on to your foundations, no matter what, then how can you ever grow? Um, And that's part of the issue. Roots and wings, you know? How do we keep ourselves really rooted but allow ourselves to fly at the same time? Uh, And that, somewhere in that murky middle, that that space, I think, is um, where we need to find not only our understanding of Judaism, but as well our understanding of the other. Where can I be flexible? Where can I hear them without losing myself? Those kind of questions, I think, are going to be key going forward into a world where people feel entirely that they are sort of hankering down into deeper and deeper inflexibility, where can I grow without losing my sense of
0: self? I have to ask you this question. Um, Talking about labour and anti-Semitism that you mentioned earlier, um, what thoughts do you have about that sort of um, row with labour and anti-Semitism, Jeremy Corbyn, and do you think that um, your religion requires you not to vote for Labour or to stay away from that party, vote for Conservative or other parties as opposed to Labour. Gosh. Um,
1: so, you know, I haven't quite let go of the, my family tradition, which is, you know, socialist, Marxist. I was actually raised on a sprout, a sprout farm in Berkeley, California. You know, <laughs> as hippie as you can get. As, you know, as socialist as you can get. Um, and it's, I think deeply embedded in my own sense of justice around uh, the poor, um, around the environment, that we support and give voice to the voiceless, and I think the Labour Party does that quite well. When it comes to anti-Semitism, it's an issue that I've personally, you know, seen and, and, You know, a lot of people in my own congregation will come back and say, if Corbyn wins the next election, we're on the first plane to Israel. We're out of this country. This country can't have Corbyn as prime minister. Um, Now, that's quite drastic, but it seems to be a growing sentiment. Um, I think a lot of it is going back to a lot of what we talked about today, there's a lack of dialogue, you know, um, especially around those around the current labor leadership i don't know if they're able to really engage with the jewish community at face value by the same token i think some of the larger jewish institutions uh, have set themselves on a crash course and uh, no exit strategy with corbin and his team until there simply isn't much room to discuss the deep issue and the deep issue i don't think is Corbyn hating Jews? I think it's more Israel-Palestine. and that dialogue, I think what would help is finding those, uh, we used this concept before, still small voices. Kol Ka. Elijah, the prophet, comes and says, you know, there's God's not in the flame, and he's not in the thunder, and he's not in all the noise, and all the politics. I, well, I shouldn't say that, I just added that. Text. Um, <laughs> he says, God's not in the big political stuff. He's in the small conversations, the still small voice. We're lacking that. We're lacking that between Jews and Muslims in this country. And I think on on a wider scale, we have very few places where we can hear the issues around Israel, Palestine, and Middle East conflict in a serious way that allows us to hear why others feel differently than I do. Twitter is a bad platform, because I, don't only get to, I only get to share what I think, not hear what others think. Learning and finding the real-life, small-scale platforms for those conversations, I think, would trickle down into the deeper labor stuff, because I think the issues of labor aren't issues of anti-Semitism, they're issues of anti-Zionism.
0: What, is, is it, what does that mean um,
1: That the left has for a long time seen the plight of the Palestinian people as one of its core values. Um, And for many people, myself included, I'm also an Israeli citizen. uh, That often feels quite like a, um, a place where I'm not allowed to enter and to have my voice heard. And I would love to see the Labor Party and others opening up those doors even if we're going to disagree adamantly afterwards, or we can have real conversations about why I feel like I do about Israel, why they feel, that they feel about the Palestinian plight, to hear each other's stories in a way that could be constructive. We don't know because it's very rarely happening, but um, there are really interesting small-scale peace works happening in Israel and Palestine with people on the ground, and I think if we followed their example, instead of bringing all the conflict and porting it in, we could export some of the good stuff that we do around other faith, interfaith initiatives, into that realm as well.
0: So what would you say to a young Jew in the Labour Party who's thinking of leaving, would you say push that dialogue and try and hang in there, focus on, try and get people to speak to each other rather than just leaving?
1: Yeah, I would say to them, perhaps um, don't define what's happening in the Labour Party as anti-Semitic, that closes down doors. Define it as an opportunity to speak about some of the political issues that are probably sitting there
0: right under the surface that could come up. Thank you, Natan. Thank you very much, (laughs) Jeeves. And thank you at home, work or abroad for listening. Feel free to subscribe if you like or dislike the podcast. Get in touch by tweeting us at the Faith Forums for London page at London Faith, And let us know what you thought of the show or if you have any questions that you would like me to ask our guests. Tune in next week. Adios.